Well, good evening, everybody. It is great to have you back to week five of the Alpha Course. Okay, how many have fall five weeks, five weeks of attendance, not missed a one? That's great. That's super. How many first-timers? I know we got at least one first-timer here tonight. Anybody else first-time? Yes? Good to see you both, and maybe more of you, if I missed you. Well, tonight is week five of the Alpha Course. How and why should I read the Bible? Um, I want to remind you that uh, we have CDs of the previous weeks. If you'd like to get a hold of those, I don't know if your car even has a CD player anymore, if you have a CD player anymore, uh, but uh, those are available to you. You can also go back. You can go to Lakeview Christian Center's uh, YouTube page, and you can catch the recordings of the previous alphas. We'd love for you to do that. And um, so, hey, I want to give a shout out tonight. We've got a, a gal watching from Utah, a gal named Jade. So Jade, welcome. It's great to have you here. They're clapping for you. And uh, my, uh, my daughter and her husband and family are watching from Trustville, Alabama tonight. So Joya, pay attention. Titus, pay attention. Phineas, you just do whatever you want because that's what you're going to do anyway. So anyway, uh, we're excited about uh, tonight. Uh, why and how should I read the Bible? You know, many years ago, if you'd asked me about the Bible, um, I, I couldn't have told. I did not know what a, I literally. This is true. I did not know what a Bible was. Um, I would make deals with God and put my hand on this religious book that I thought was the Bible. And uh, by the end of the, you know, promising God I'd only sin five more times. And by the end of the day, I would be renegotiating the contract. And, uh, and uh, I wish that were not true. But my meology did not need a Bible. Um, but an understanding of the importance of the God of the Bible necessitates a knowledge of the Bible. I mean, and that makes sense to me now. Um, but it didn't then. But if you would have tested me on on the Bible. Maybe let's say somebody would have given me a remedial Bible quiz. And so I, tonight I, I brought you what would have been my remedial Bible quiz. So Frank's remedial Bible quiz. Uh, one, why should you read the Bible? Now, I would have no idea, clearly no idea how to answer that question. So I would have missed the first one. Two, is Christianity based on the Bible? Well, that kind of makes sense, even though I'd never read it and I would have considered myself a Christian, though I, I, I wasn't, I would say, well, sure. Uh, is Christianity based only on the Bible? Well, I'd say that's probably pretty narrow. I'm not so sure that I would agree with that. So, um, so those were kind of tough. But then we got to, I mean, finally I got thrown an easy question. What is Jesus Christ's middle initial? Right, Jesus, H, Christ. Um, any of you guys ever... <laughs> it's just... just so I got that one. I got that one right. <clears throat> Number five. In what Bible book is God addressed as the man upstairs? I mean, that's... I'm not quite sure what that one was. Uh, number six. Um, so I, I didn't get that one right either. What book reveals the location of the stairway to heaven so that you can find the man upstairs, I guess? I'm not quite sure. I think that's the gospel according to Led Zeppelin, but I'm not sure. Uh, number seven, there's another one. What book reveals the location of the highway to hell? You've got stairways to heaven, highways to hell. That, that is the gospel according to ACDC, if I'm not mistaken as well. 
So I, I was really bad. I, I thought I got this one right, though. I wasn't sure. Is Noah's wife's name Joan of Arc? I thought, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? Um, then, number nine, name the four Gospels. It's like, well, first of that, four. But, um, St. John, um, St. Paul, St. George, and St. Ringo. I mean, that's would have been my, the four Gospels, according to me. Uh, <clears throat> do we have any more? Yes. Write three Bible verses you know. Well, I was like, oh, man, this is a head scratcher. So um, my mother taught me one. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Um, I just, I believed her. Um, number two, don't be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. Anybody ever hear of that? Yeah, that's, well, uh, you, you would have missed it too. Um, so I've come to find out that un unless you are heavenly minded, you really aren't much earthly good, but that's my own opinion. And the last one, I knew I got this one right. I knew I got this one right. God helps those who help themselves. Now, wouldn't you have thought that was in the Bible? Matter of fact, the Bible says exactly the opposite of that. So thankfully, there's a bonus question. So for those of you who haven't done very well, here's your bonus question. Um, what Bible verse puts the most fear of God in you? And I said, hmm, I know. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good so you don't bake. <laughs> so anyway, that was my Bible quiz, which I just didn't know much about. But so why don't we know that the Bible says just the opposite of God helps those that help themselves? Well, why don't we know that? Because we don't know the Bible. And we think the Bible does say God helps those that help themselves. Cleanliness is next to godliness. We think, you know, do everything you possibly can so that God will accept you. Well, we don't know that the Bible says the exact opposite because I, growing up, aware of God, uh, feeling at times that there were more things I should be doing, uh, but not knowing really how to do them, trying to go to church as much as I could, trying to not do the things I shouldn't do, do the things I should do. Um, I, I had no idea what was in the Bible. And the Bible is our roadmap. It's a roadmap that leads us to an understanding of who Christ is and, and what he desires for us. So we have to come out, what's true? God helps those that help themselves, or as we've talked about in week three, all have sinned, all have lied, stolen, cheated, been jealous, envious, and come short of that which is acceptable to God. Or, hey, just do the best you can, and you may just slip in, but you'll get in. So both of those things can't be true, and that's what we've talked about. If this is your theology, which I would respectfully call meology, because the focus is on how well I am doing, or biblical Christianity that says, you can't, but Christ has done this for us. So we need to, I need to see that I am not capable in myself of helping myself. So the issue again is when it came to the Bible, because I hadn't read it, I didn't have my own concept. I, I, I didn't have my own concept of God because I didn't need one as a committed meologist. I didn't need it. I assumed things about the Bible, and therefore I just kind of thought stereotypically. I kind of thought the way everybody else thought, but not biblically. 
But again, hear this. Stereotypical thinking is not necessarily thinking at all. It's certainly not critical thinking. And because we don't know what the Bible says, we make assumptions. And here's some of the assumptions that I made, some of the assumptions I've heard, some of the assumptions that maybe you may hold on to or have heard yourself. Here's one of them. You really can't understand the Bible. It's just too hard. So why bother? Um, There's so many different interpretations. Who's to know what the right one is anyway? Okay. Or it's so full of errors. I mean, maybe there's some truth in there, but it's just full of errors. And you're talking about fish swallowing men and people living in furnaces, surviving fires. I mean, really? Do you believe all that stuff? Um, Or um, it's all bad news anyway. I mean, I got enough guilt in my life without the Bible piling on to the issues I'm already dealing with. Or this is, this is really, um, this is my personal favorite. Um, we're not supposed to read it. Really? We're not supposed to read it. Where did we get that idea from anyway? That, matter of fact, you won't find that in the Bible. Matter of fact, the Bible says just the opposite it says just the opposite. Here's, a, here's Jesus quoted by John, John's gospel, the 20th chapter. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So here's what John wrote about Jesus. These are written. Okay, why is something written down typically? To be read. That's exactly right. This is simply be read. They're written so that you may believe, we're going to talk a little bit more about believing tonight, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Well, who needs life in his name? Now, if you weren't here last week, you're going to go, what is this guy pulling out styrofoam cups for? Okay, because you don't have life if you're in Adam. Believing in him, getting in the wheelbarrow, saying I do, receiving the gift, if you've been here over these weeks, means we get life in his Name, But that's why it's written so that you may believe. And so God gives us his word so that we can read it, pray about it, and believe what God has said. Because the Bible says this, we'll get to the scripture a little bit later, that faith in him, belief, that's what belief and faith, synonymous terms, come by hearing. And hearing comes by, by God's word, by the word of Christ. That's what, that's what it tells us. And so these are things that... Again, if you've stereotypically thought, I can't read it, I can't understand it, do I believe it, whatever, at least let's find out what's in it. But the Bible instructs us to read it. God instructs us to read his word. So why read the Bible? We're at the top of page 34 tonight in your manual if you want to hang out there for a little bit. But, but here's a personal question. I'd be curious to know. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. Maybe you can do this uh, with your table host uh, this evening. How many of you would say that you have read the Bible more in the last four Tuesdays? You've read the Bible more in the last four Tuesdays than you have maybe in the last four decades. Or if you haven't been on the planet, four decades. Four years. Or 24 years. Or 14 years. And what we have found through the 38, now you were the 38th class of Alpha, 
what we have found is that it is a huge minority of us who have really ever opened the Bible to see what it has to say. Can I tell you? You're missing a treasure. I was missing a treasure of the, of the descriptions and the dictations and the desires of God for me to know him through what many call God's love letter. And so it's, uh, it's important for us to know. So let's just talk about this. Um, we're going to look at a couple of these at the top of page 34. The, it says that the Bible is the most popular book. Now, here are 23 of the top authors of, uh, in the last 10 years. You, I mean, obviously, we've heard C.S. Lewis, J.K. Rowling. Uh, you recognize that name. You should recognize that name. And some, some others here. Uh, Stan and Jane Berenstain. This is about my speed right here. Remember the Berenstain Bears? Uh, all those here. Um, so anyway, but if you take all of the books that they have ever sold, that comes up to about three and a half billion. Three and a half billion copies sold among those 23 authors. If you take the Bible, just in the, last, in the 1990s, over five billion Bibles were sold in the 1990s alone. And this doesn't count the uncountable number of how many were given away. How many were just printed and printed and given away? And so just in 10 years, the, Bi- the Bible is perennially the best seller. If, it w- if the New York Times doesn't put the, the Bible as the best seller because it would just be the best seller year after year after year after year. So it's powerful in its production. It's powerful in its, its purpose. It's powerful in its preservation. And it's, it's had some powerful effects on some rather powerful people. Let's just see three presidents here. George Washington said, it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Now, if, if, if Washington was right, um, it's, it, I would think it's interesting that the more we in our society today try to erase the Bible, um, the more secular we become and the more divided and hateful it seems like we become. And so when Washington says this, it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Maybe we maybe see some issues that are going on today because we have tried to erase the God of the Bible out of the public square. Maybe, maybe not. This is what Lincoln said. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is, com- is communicated to us through this book. Well, I don't think Lincoln, if I took issue with that, I would say, no, I'd say I believe the Bible is the best gift God has given to man. I would say God's son is the best gift God has given to man, and I'm grateful that he gave us the Bible so we could understand that God had given us his son. Reagan said this, within the covers of the Bible are all the answers for all the problems men face. I mean, so some pretty powerful men with some pretty powerful duties putting a lot of emphasis on the Bible and what the Bible has to say. And you know, its, it's preservation is amazing. It really is amazing. Historically, it's encouraging to whether or not you're, you're committed or just curious. We talked about this in week two, I believe, about textual criticism, the science of textual criticism, which has something called the bibliographical test in it, where there are these three tests within it, the quali- quantity of the manuscripts, the quality of the manuscripts, quantity of the manuscripts, how many do we have existing still, 
Handwritten manuscript means handwritten. The quality of the manuscripts, how consistent are they? Are they all saying the same thing? Are there criticisms or contradictions, rather? And then the time span. What's the time span between the original autograph and then the copies that are showing up? And we talked about how the Bible far outstrips any work of antiquity in the number of copies, the consistency of the copies, and the time span between the original and the autograph. And so we've seen this. Nelson Gluck uh, was a professor of archaeology uh, at Hebrew Union College. This is what Gluck said. Gluck used to walk around with the Hebrew scriptures in his back pocket as they were doing archaeological digs. And this is what he said. He said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And the same token, pardon me, and by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. They form tesserae or little tiles in the vast mosaic of the Bible's almost incredibly historic memory. And so this scientist would walk around with the Bible and they would just look in the Hebrew scriptures as to where certain things were said to be and they would start digging. And son of a gun, they didn't find them. And what's happened over the years is, you know, originally when the science of archaeology began to really develop, become more complex, all the critics of the Bible says, finally, we have science in place to debunk the Bible archaeologically and therefore historically. Well, guess what's happened? Just the opposite. The more archaeologists dig, uh, the more they discover that what we find, find written is actually historical, not just some fables written on parchment. And so we see this. There's an interesting magazine, Biblical Archaeology Review. It's put out six times a year. Um, started uh, publication in 1974. And so, I mean, there are publications like this that just are offering us more and more and more about one Bible discovery, archaeological discovery after another. It's fascinating stuff. Fascinating. Now, um, there's a, there's, a, um, there's a book written by Dr. Peter Stoner, and, and, and he wrote in his book, Science Speaks, he wrote on the topic of the science of probability. I didn't know that there was a science of probability, but there is. And when it came to just one person, it's, it's purported in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis through the last book of the Old Testament, we would call it, called Malachi, there are, there are about 330 prophecies concerning, concerning Jesus, concerning a Messiah to come. Now, if one person were to fulfill just, just 48 of those, that would be 10 to the 157th power. The possibility of that would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's, that's a 10 with 156 zeros after it, one chance. But let's just say for a minute, 8 prophecies. Okay? Now, these are, these are statements that were written in the Hebrew Scriptures 
before the birth of Christ, well before the birth of Christ, hundreds of years and more before the birth of Christ. So where, where the Messiah would be born, what the, the type of birth that it would be, the time of the appearance of the Messiah in Jerusalem, that, that Jerusalem entrance, his betrayal, the type of death he would suffer, his burial and resurrection. So if, if one person were to be able to fill just, just those eight, that would be ten to the 17th power. That's 10. It looks like that. One in that number right there. All right? So, so what Peter Stoner did was this. He did a little research. And this has, been, this has been proven scientifically by the American Science Affiliation. You just look it up. Don't believe me. I looked it up. Um, that one in 10 to the 17th power is this. It is the state of Texas, two feet deep in silver dollars. All right? So imagine the state of Texas, two feet deep in silver dollars. And you were to go and put an X, take one of those silver dollars, put a red X on one of those silver dollars, and just throw it back into the pile, and maybe throw in a little Texas twister and stir the whole thing up, blindfold yourself or somebody, and have them go in and pick out the one silver dollar with the red X, the chance of that person doing that is one in 10 to the 17th power. Just eight prophecies. Not 300 plus, not 54, just eight. And that number is almost exponential. So the Bible is a powerful book. It's a popular book. It's a preserved book. It's a precious book. It's true, it's, there's nothing more precious than this because it reveals who God is and who we are with and who we are without him. It is not a self-help book. It is a self-revealing book. And it is a God-revealing book. You know, and the, the great thing I love about, you know, the, some of these evidences is that God has not called, called us to check our brain at the door. He hasn't called us to do that. He's asked us to, but though to humbly search, to recognize that he is God and we are not. And the Bible tells us, you know, it's interesting. (laughs) I don't necessarily like this, but it's true. The Bible tells us all we need to know, not all we want to know. Tells us all we need to know, but not all we want to know. Why? Because we want to understand. We need an explanation. Well, here's the thing. If you could understand God... If you could understand even all of this, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? I mean, I hardly got through LSU, and I'm trying to understand God. He is so much greater, so much more vast than we can imagine. And the fact that he's revealed anything of himself to us is simply amazing. You know, I, I, I love this quote by Mark Twain. Mark Twain said this. He said, he said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do. And what a true statement. I can't deal away with the ones I do understand because I don't understand the ones I don't understand. I mean, I can, but that's just not intellectually honest, I don't believe. But God wants us, according to the Bible, to humbly search, to thoughtfully search. We've talked about this week after week after week, that when you leave here to say, to, you know, to, again, just lie in your bed, stare at your ceiling, and say, God, if you're there, and you care, and you want me to know you, then I'm, I'm ready to hear. I'm listening. 
And I believe he is, he is bound and determined to answer that prayer. So, well, let's just do a little more test. We had a, had a uh, test a little bit earlier. Let's just do another test. Here, a little multiple choice test here that I'll give you guys, which I think you may know the answer to because you've been taught so well over these last four weeks. So there's a lawyer that comes to Jesus and he asks him a question to test him. And the teacher, he says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Okay, so Jesus, what's the great commandment in the law? We're talking about the Ten Commandments here and the various other laws there. And he said to him, here's Jesus' answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Okay, and here's your test here. And all your sincerity. You've been listening. <laughs> all your enthusiasm. Just, just be excited. Uh, your higher consciousness. Just your gut feelings. Just, you know, if it feels good. Or, E, mind. We're going for, what are we going for? E. e, wow. Okay, let's see if you're right. Yes, you are correct. Okay, so Jesus says, this is the great commandment. Right? And then he goes on to say, this is the great and foremost commandment. What is the great and foremost commandment? Again, this is Jesus speaking here, not me, not John. This is Jesus saying, here's the great and foremost commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your full being, with all your soul, okay, your emotions, and with all your mind. How are you going to do that? I think what the Lord is saying is, you're not capable of doing that without the God who infuses you with his life until he takes you out of Adam and he places you into Christ so that you know, really know, really, really know what love and who love is. Jesus says the greatest commandment is not doing so much around. It's loving the one who is everywhere and wants us to know him. So why and how should I read the Bible? Well, let's keep going here. So God has spoken through his word, revelation of himself. Let's just talk about some, some quick Bible facts here. You may be interested a little bit more about the construction of the Bible. Here's some historical facts surrounding the Bible. So the, New, the Old Testament, which, we, which sometimes... The, our, our Jewish friends like to call the Hebrew scriptures. They don't like, I understand, I wouldn't want it to be called Old Testament. That's the one I believe. I don't believe the New Testament says, would say, that, say many Jews. But it's comprised of 66 books, 37 in the Old Testament and 27 in, 29, pardon me, in the New Testament. Um, there are 40 authors. So when you take the Bible, there's 40 different authors from various walks of life. There are several, I mean, you have fishermen and you have any numbers of different types of walks of life that wrote this. Luke was a, a doctor. Uh, Matthew was an accountant. Um, so it's across a time of, so the Bible's written between 1,500 and 1,800 years. Okay, the Bible consists of narrative history. It consists of war stories, drama, exposition, letters, prophecies, sermons, and wisdom literature. It's combined with so many different types of literary devices. 
And it's written on three continents. And it is written in three different languages. So we see that the amazing thought that this, this which we call the Bible was written over almost 1,800 years in different languages across different continents by people that didn't even know one another and has come together and been held together through the years to give us what we call the Bible. So is the Bible one book? Yes and no. It's 66 books. And the miracle of it is that from Genesis to Revelation, the first book of the Hebrew Scriptures to Revelation, it's saying the same thing. It's telling us of a God who created, a God who loves, a God who recognizes our sin, and a God who recreates and desires for us to, to know him. And so let's, you know, we could break down the Bible this way. As a matter of fact, we got a little card for you tonight um, that you can have. If you want us to send you one of these, if you're watching live stream, just send us your address and we can send you this. But you can just take a picture right now if you want to with your cell phone. Um, but so we see the way the Old Testament is broken down into the law or the Torah or the Pentateuch. Okay, Penta meaning five. This is the law that is given here. Obviously, there's history in it. And then the historical books from, from Joshua to Esther. Then we have what, what are called books of poetry. We have major and minor prophets. It, just, it doesn't mean that these guys were more important than they. These books are smaller than these are for the most part. Um, and then you get to the New Testament. You've got the four Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Um, you've got the, the book of Acts, which is a history of the first church. And uh, this is fascinating. This is written by Luke, a Gentile physician. Then we see Paul's letters to the churches. Okay, those who, these are those who have come that are in Adam. Then we have general epistles and then, then the book of Revelation. So we can see the way the Bible, the way the Bible is, is laid out. And again, we can spend more time talking about that tonight. I don't want to go into great detail about that. But the, but the Bible, what it does is it reveals in writing what I know internally is true. That there's something bigger than I. You know, that I'm, that I'm, things I see on the outside in terms of creation bring an internal sensation. What I see on the outside in terms of creation brings an internal sensation. You've seen a sunset, a sunrise. Net and I were out in uh, Wyoming in May and June, and I'm just, I'm just, my mouth is open through the entire thing. It's just the glory and the beauty. And it, said, and it just speaks that there must be more than, than this. There must be intelligent design behind this. So why should I read the Bible? Well, if the Bible is true, it holds all the answers to the questions that we all have. But unless you and I know what it says, we won't know how important it is. I think, it, you know, a lot of us just never have never opened the book. And so obviously we don't know what's in it. And the more we open it, God says, you will find me in this book. The Bible even says you will search for me and you will, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart, with all your being. And that searching for us is found pretty much right in here. And so it's important for us to know that and to open it up. Like I, like I told you guys uh, almost every week, 
even if you don't believe a word of this, at least find out what's in it. Just find out and discover what is in this book. And I think that would, you'd be doing yourself a favor. I really, really do. So the Bible's purpose is to direct us to God. That's, this, is what, this is what Paul writes in his letter to the pastor, the young pastor, Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. In other words, God, the Bible claims that God moved upon men to write what we have as the scriptures. It's inspired by God and is profitable. Okay, you, like, you know what profitable means, don't you? We Americans know what profitable means. Okay, it, it, it means it's good. You'll, you'll be richer. You'll be more successful. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof. Okay, so it, it, it teaches, it tells you what's wrong, it shows you how to correct it, and then it trains you over and over again so that we can be trained in righteousness. Now, I don't need a lot of training in doing what's wrong. How about you? I mean, I can hone my skills in doing what's wrong. But it kind of comes naturally, naturally to me doing what's wrong. But what the Bible does is it trains me in a new way of thinking. Screwing up comes naturally in Adam. But what God has done when he takes and he puts us in Christ... He wants to train us in this new life that he has given us. And his word is a great training manual, a great source of teaching, of reproving, of, reproving, of correcting and training us in righteousness. It's, if you will, it's like spiritually exercising. You want to, you want to develop your, your physical biceps? You do curls. If you want to develop your spiritual biceps... You open this, and you ask God to reveal himself to you as you open it. And guess what he does? He reveals himself as you do that. So, it's great, great direction. It's not the picture of religion that I had held sincerely by faith, but wrongly. You know, I, I really thought that God was looking for me to screw up. I don't, I don't know why, I just kind of had this sense that He's just waiting for me. He's got this hammer just waiting for me to screw up. But I came to find through the, the scripture that God's teaching and reproving was fully love motivated. He loved, he loved and loves me. His correction and his training is fully motivated by his love. And it teaches me, what it does is this, it teaches me that Jesus bore the anger and wrath of God for me. He came to take me out of Adam, to rescue me from being in Adam, being separated from him, being dead in my sins, and to give me life in Christ. I mean, can you imagine, if that is true, just give it to me for a minute. If that is true, can there be better news than that? Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly in the dash. You know what I'm talking about for those of you who've been here in the dash. And on the other side of our last heartbeat, forever. Could there possibly be any news better than that? And I would argue, no. How could there be? How could there possibly be? See, the Bible is our instruction manual for life. And we, I mean, here's the thing. You and I can't even put a bike together without instructions, much less our lives, <laughs> really. I mean, I don't know. Maybe some of us are more mechanical than others. Um, bikes have, have, may be complicated to... Uh, to kind of put together, but 
those are nothing compared to the challenges of life at all. Um, the Bible teaches that we have a need for God, and without Him, the parts just don't come together. The parts in life just do not come together. Anybody ever put a bike together Christmas mornings? You know, it's Christmas night, you're supposed to put that bike together. Um, and you, and you, you know, you pull all the parts out of the, out of the box and you just put it all down there and you, who needs the instructions, right? I mean, I got this thing. And so you're putting it all together. It looks pretty good. It's all sitting there. It looks great. But then there's this one piece sitting on the floor all by itself. It doesn't look like it has any meaning or purpose at all. And so what do you finally do? You pick up begrudgingly the instructions. And you look at that piece, and you find that piece, and it says, important. In the early stages of the construction of the bike, this is to be put on. Otherwise, you should not proceed with any further assembly. Now, it's three in the morning. Your kids are going to be up in two and a half hours. It's Christmas morning. You very quietly turn your back, you go outside, it's cold, you don't care because you are furious. And you stare up at the sky and you say, curse you, Mr. Schwinn, why didn't you make this easier for me? Well, how much sense does that make? Because he gave us the instructions for, Schwinn gave us the instructions for bicycles and God gave us the instructions for for life. See, but really the issue is this. Um, the issue is need. Is it not? If, if I don't sense that I really have a need in my life, that I've got it all together, this is really nice, inf interesting information, Frank. The dinners are great. That's what's got me coming back, and I'm grateful for that. That's something to keep you coming. But the, the, the issue is need. Do I see a need in my life that nothing else to date has been able to satisfy me? And an itch that nothing has been able to scratch on this planet. Maybe this is just information. And I'm grateful that you're here, just getting information. But it doesn't make sense till I really see I have a need that nothing in this world can satisfy. I got a hole inside of me that nothing has been able to fill. So let's just do this. Let's just go back to... Let's go back to Niagara Falls again tonight. You, um, you remember Niagara Falls. Um, and we talked about the fact that you're here either curious or convinced or committed. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But last week we talked about Blondin doing these great, amazing feats across, walking back and forth across this tightrope at, at Niagara, at the rapids of Niagara. And uh, I asked you the question, do you believe, you know, you saw him take his manager and put him on his back and go back and forth, put a wheel, take a wheelbarrow, put somebody in it and go back and forth. And then he came back and he asked you, the audience that were assembled there, he said, I can take a man or a woman, put him in a wheelbarrow, take him from one side of the falls to the next. Do you believe I can do it? And let's say you said yes. Well, then get in. If you believe it, then get in. But who the heck is going to get in to have to prove that? I'm not going to get in. I mean, maybe I think I, I, you know, I believe it, but I don't believe you enough to get in. But let's say this for a minute. 
You're all facing me. The rapids are behind me. I'm speaking to you. You came in through a very densely forested era area. There's only one way to get in and one way to get out. And you all came, you gathered around the, the, the rapids and so you could be as close to seeing what Blondin is doing as possible. And then all of a sudden, as you're looking at me, you're seeing my eyes go above you and my eyes get really big and you're starting to feel heat on the back of your neck that's radiating into your body and you turn around and you see the entire entrance which is nothing but forest is engulfed in flames and there's no way out you there you feeling it you're sweating uh, i can take a person put them in a wheelbarrow take them from one side of the falls to the next it's not a publicity stunt any longer. It's a matter of life or death. Now, you could answer any number of things. You could turn and try to run through 100 yards of on-fire forest. You'll be quick-fried to a crackly crunch. There's going to be nothing left of you but bones when we find you. Or you could say, get out of the way, Blondin. I'm going to, I'm going to do this tightrope thing myself. Or you could just jump off the side and hope to survive the rapids, which no one has ever survived. Or you could say, I cannot save myself. I want to accept your gift of taking me from one. It's faith. I want to accept your gift of taking me from one side of the falls to the next. You see, until I recognize I have a need that is bigger than I it's just nice information. But when I see that there is no answer of escape and there is only one source of rescue, that's when everything in me is looking for that answer. And Jesus says, I am the way, take you back to week one, the truth and the life. And so do you see your need, that's something to think about. What is going to make you happy? Most people say what they want in life is happiness. Well, okay, we'll define it. Eventually, no matter how happy you may be in life, it's going to end. And you've, you've seen some of the, the things we brought on the screen that the most successful people on the planet are still, is that all there is? There's got to be more than this. So here's the question. Do I see the need? See, there are two problematic issues with getting in the wheelbarrow. Two issues of getting in the wheelbarrow. One, and I'm going to come back to this in a second. To get in the wheelbarrow means I cease insisting and desiring that God accept me based on my performance. Okay, I want to make sure you understand that. I can't ask every one of you whether you do or not. But I cease insisting and desiring that God accept me based upon how well I think I did. That's meology. Okay, that is meology. Secondly, I no longer accept God based on his performance from my, expect, my, from my perspective. That's meology too. 
See, both are me-centered. That means I have to recognize there's nothing I can do to earn his acceptance. And there's nothing God has to do for me to be accepted. Based on what I have done, what I have done. See, and so what, that, what does that mean? It means I relinquish, I relinquish control. When you get in that wheelbarrow, Blondin's wheelbarrow, have you relinquished control? Yeah, I sure hope so. Because he does not need your help getting across the, the rapids. Have I relinquished control of my life or not to the one who says he loves me and died to prove it? And it, and it, looks, like, and it looks like this. I start believing he loves and accepts me because of his performance, not mine. You see, the problem with this is, like I said, it's, it erases me from having anything to do with this other than getting in the wheelbarrow, other than believing him. I have written these things to you who believe in Jesus Christ, who believe to believe is to get in. And so last week, when we talked about this, we talked about, maybe you're here curious. You don't know what you believe, but you're seeking. And I think that's awesome. Thank you for being here curious. Or you're convinced. You grew up in a church or around church your whole life, trying to be good, trying to check off the good box and not the bad box. But you, know, you don't know anything. Like, I knew nothing about surrendering my life to Jesus Christ. This was not a religious thing. This was a relational thing. And so you may be here curious, convinced, and maybe you're here committed or wanting to be committed. Well, I want to make sure you understand what this term committed means. Committed doesn't mean trying harder. Committed doesn't mean pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Committed means totally surrendered, committed to his commitment. If you get on an airplane... What is the pilot looking for from your commitment? What, what commitment does the pilot want from you? Sit down, buckle your seatbelt, and hang on till we get there. He's not looking for you. She's not looking for you to come into the cockpit and help him or her fly the plane. Certainly nobody else on the plane would be doing that. So when committed means, if Christ, let's just say Christ is at the, in the plane... He's the pilot, and we come up the gangway, and he hugs us, and he's so grateful that we have gotten in the wheelbarrow, said, I do, received the gift. What we think with our religious minds is that he then grabs us by the, the nap of the neck and takes us to the cockpit, throws us in the pilot seat, and says, fly this thing, and you better not screw up. Th that is kind of I mean, that's an exaggerated form of what... Uh, we typically think. But it's just the opposite. We come up the gangway. He hugs us. He embraces us. He accepts us. He welcomes us. He's so glad we're here. And what he does is instead of taking us into the pilots, into the cockpit in the pilot seat, he takes us into first class and he sits us there and he buckles us in and he says, son, daughter, along the way, there are going to be plenty of air pockets we're going to hit. Lots of turbulence. There are going to be plenty of times that you're going to want to throw yourself out of your seat, come straight through the cockpit and fly this thing yourself. Don't do that. Be committed to my commitment to finish the work that I began in you. Be committed to my commitment to finish the work I've begun in you. And that means 
relinquishing control. That means saying, I do, receiving the gift. See, and so we see that, that God speaks relationship. The Bible speaks that, that God loves us. This is God. Some have called this, I said earlier, God's love letter to reveal the truth about his character and by so doing, draw us to him. Paul wrote this to Timothy as well. Let me pop now back through this. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings of scriptures, which are able to give you, the scriptures are able, and I hear this, the scriptures are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, through getting in the wheelbarrow, saying I do, receiving the gift, which is in Christ Jesus. No longer in Adam, but in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings are able to give you wisdom, to give you knowledge, to give you understanding, which will do what? It'll lead you to Christ. Salvation through Christ is what Paul tells us. Okay? And it's important for us to see that the Bible is to draw us to relationship with him. And we just see it's one scripture after another. Here, here uh, Jesus is recorded through the Gospel of Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'm gentle, humble at heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, look, come to me and I'll give you a new job description. Is that what it says? No, I'll come to me and I'll, I'll, I'll give you qualifications. I'll give you rules. That's not what it says. It says, come to me and I'll give you rest for your soul, for the way you think, the way you feel, the way you choose. That's what, it, that's, that's what the promise of this God is. And he reveals that through his, his word. So God wants us to know him. Here, this is what John um, records of Jesus saying. He says, the thief, and what he's talking about the thief here is a supernatural evil. He's talking about Satan. And that's going to be week seven. That we're going to talk about how can I resist evil just two weeks from tonight. The thief comes only, only, doesn't do anything else but stealing and killing and destroying. And the way he steals and kills and destroys is by first dividing. We're seeing a lot of that going on. He says, but Jesus said, I have come that they, that's those who are in Christ now, may have life and have it more abundantly. Life in the dash. Not, not carefree, not worry-free, not trouble-free. But abundant in the midst of the challenges of this world. And then forever with him. We are made in the image of God. Humans are made in the image of God, relational. <clears throat> and I'll prove it to you right now, just so you can see this. <clears throat> I want you to go with me right now. Just bear with me. Do this. Go with me right now to a funeral home. And you are standing over the coffin of the person, the closest person in the world to you. <clears throat> they are lying in that coffin. They are dead. They are lifeless. What would you do to get them back? What would you do to get them back? Would you just give everything to have them back? You'd give everything to have them back.
And what does that prove to us? That in the depths of our being, we are relational. People mean more to us than anything else. There's nothing more valuable than having them. Well, here's what we need to hear. God stood over our lifeless beings and he gave his son so he could get us back. We were dead from him. We were separate, dead in Adam, separated from God by our sins. And God saw our lifeless, hopeless, breathless beings and he gave the greatest gift and answer he could. He gave us Jesus. So that in the dash and in the line forever, this God who created us in his image would have us with him now and forever. So his whole point is we read this not to get smart but to know him who is really smart, to get to know him more. And the Bible says, it tells us that faith comes by hearing. So, I'm just going to rush through this real quick. This scripture that we brought up early, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him, you would have life in his Name, life in his name. So how do we hear God speak through the Bible? Well, I want us to do this. Let's just turn, I'm just about to close here. Let's just turn to page 36 in your manual. And let's just take a look at this. Um, now there are lots of, you can talk, you all can talk about this at your table tonight too. There's lots of Bible apps, good Bible apps you can put on your, your smartphone. That, that could help you. There's, and it's more than just the Bible. You get lots of study guides and different types of things to help you. But here's, a, here's a, how we can hear God speak through his word. We can just you know, make a plan. Find time. Don't think you need to find an hour, two hours. Start slow. Start with five minutes. Just five minutes. I, I would encourage you to start in one of the Gospels, either Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John. Uh, have a... Bring a journal with you. Just write questions. Write in that thing. Now, we've given each and every one of you a Bible. Hey, if you're watching live stream and you don't have a Bible, you want a Bible, email me, frank at lakeviewchristiancenter.com, and we will mail a Bible to you. Um, so you can do that. Um, just get a quiet place to do that. Maybe wake up five minutes early. Stay up five minutes later, whatever it would be. And then just ask before you, before you open it, God, ah, I've never done this before. I'm 85 years old. I've never done this before. Um, show me. Reveal yourself to me. Again, you're not interacting with a book. You're interacting with the one who wrote the book. And, and this is what he's written to us. Ask yourself, what does it say to me? What does it mean to me? How does it apply to me? And then just... Respond in prayer. God, thank you for the little bit I did see. I want to see more. So you guys can talk about that some more. Talk about that with your table hosts. How, how did you go through, you know, and get into reading the Bible like you do? I mean, Donnie gets up at like 
4.30 in the morning, I think, at least, and just, I don't know how he does it, 4.30 in the morning. But, but here's, what, here's what Jesus says in Matthew, the 7th the chapter. He says, therefore, everyone who hears my words and puts them into practice. Now, how are we going to hear his words? We're going to have to read his words. And we put them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew the beat and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And Jesus Christ is the rock of his church. But the more your life and my life is, is built upon the rock of God and his word, when the rains come, and we're not necessarily talking about physical rains, we're not talking about idle rains or idle winds or, or earthquakes necessarily, we're talking about the rain of life, the rains, the struggles of life. When they come, the more I am grounded on the rock of God and his word, the more my heart, my soul, my mind, which I love the Lord my God with, are settled because he is faithful. He is faithful. So why and how should we read the Bible? Why? God gave it to us to read. He wants to reveal himself to us as we read it. How should we read it as often as possible using some of these tips that we got here? Now, next week, we're going to talk about prayer. Okay, so we'll be back in session five next week. If you want to get a head start, you can read some of that material. But how and why do we pray? How do we pray? You know, most of us just read, wrote prayers through our lives, memorized prayers, but really not communicated intimately with God. Maybe we haven't done that. Next week, we're going to talk a whole lot more about that. So with that, I'm going to stop. I want to thank you guys for being here again. Thanks for watching this live stream. And uh, we hope to see you again next week. So let's take a quick break and uh, get back to our tables for some conversation. Okay. Thank you.